There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free this is tracy v wilson from stuff you missed in history class the national sales event is on at your toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. In 2004, three years after I left the White House, I started the Clinton School of Public Service in Little Rock. I wanted to encourage more people to pursue paths in public service and to prepare them to do it. So our students are not simply required to learn in the classroom, but also to participate in actual service work in the field, in Arkansas and the rest of the United States and all around the world. Every time I'm around these students at the Clinton School, including at their recent commencement, they seem to me to be the perfect antidote to the poisonous politics of division and polarization that we see all too often in the U.S. and now around the world, where everything is zero-sum. You only win and someone else loses. So why am I telling you this? Because leadership matters. And while it's easy to take a cynical view of government and politics in today's world, it's important to remember that public service can and should still be an honorable, rewarding endeavor. For our season finale, I have the honor of speaking with a former leader and colleague who is also my friend. Tony Blair and I have worked together on both political and philanthropic causes over the last 25 years since he was first elected Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. A decade later, after he left office, he established the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change to work on some of the most difficult challenges in the world, including how to create a vital center in politics that can renew itself with practical policy solutions. Tony, thanks so much for being here. 
Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the, your your podcast. And, you know, you taught me an enormous amount. And uh, for any student of uh, the history of the Labour Party, that time when you were in power really inspired us after a long period of opposition to go and win those elections. This month is also uh, the anniversary of NATO's vote to expand, to include the Czech Republic and Hungary and Poland. And of course, now it's back in the news because of Sweden and Finland's petition to join. So, Tony, I'd like to just start by saying, first, thank you for doing this. And what's your take on where we are now with the war in Ukraine? What is most likely to happen? How do you think it will end? And what do we do then? I think with Ukraine, the risk is now you get into a long drawn out conflict, which to some degree will be in Putin's interest because his original ambitions for Ukraine have failed and failed pretty dramatically. He wanted to topple the government, replace the president, all that's gone. His ambition is now to keep that southern corridor between the, the western part of Russia and, and, and Crimea, Odessa, possibly to go up into Transnistria and, and essentially just paralyze the country of Ukraine, not by occupying all of it, but by occupying enough of it to keep it in, a, in as I say, this kind of frozen conflict. So his original ambition to topple the government failed. His ambition to stop NATO having a role has backfired spectacularly because now countries are wanting to join. However, I think the way the Ukrainian leadership has handled this has been very courageous, I think everyone knows, but also quite wise in that the Ukrainian leadership itself recognizes that there may come a point an optimal point for a negotiated end to the crisis, which allows therefore some stability to be put into the situation for them to get back control of their country and go on the journey they really want to go on, which is to become you know, a modern European nation, joining the European Union, but also reforming their own economy, giving their young people the chances they need. So I think what we've got to do is two things. We've got to keep up the pressure on Russia by giving the Ukrainians what they need by way of weapons and support and training and finance. And then we've got to be prepared, secondly, when that optimal moment comes for a negotiation the Ukrainians want to get behind them and support what they want. So I am, you know, I, I haver between pessimism that Putin will succeed in pulling this into a long drawn out conflict and optimism that the success of the Ukrainians in the field will open up that optimal moment. Because I'm naturally an optimist, I tend to the, the, the latter notion, but it's going to be very critical that we in the West keep the support strong for them. I agree with that. And if it looks like it's winding down to the kinds of alternatives you suggested, uh, I think one challenge that we'll have to help them meet is we have to make them strong enough so that they don't have to give up so much of what is in the East that they become almost a basket case economically. I mean, an enormous percentage of Ukraine's wealth, at least in today's economy, is concentrated in the East. You, you know, they're 
between Russia and Ukraine, they produce 30% of the world's wheat, and a lot of that is in the area that Russia is trying to dominate. They produce a, a lot of minerals and rare earths, including about 30% of the world's manganese, and it's over there. So uh, I think the, the world needs to, the, to think about that. I think President Biden's done a great job of uniting Europe with the U.S. and Canada and other allies and, you know, giving them the help they need to defend themselves. But we have to think about now, we need a plan now for what we'll do at the end of hostilities when they have to make ends meet and have to feed their children and educate them and build their economy. Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's um, completely right. I think, I mean, part of the trouble is what one of the things the Russians are doing is actually torturing some of the supplies of, of grain the Ukrainians have, trying to disrupt their agricultural production, which, of course, is an enormous problem for the world. I mean, the African presidents you and I will both be speaking to will be telling us and are telling us that food shortages are going to become a major problem in the developing world. Um, but it's, it's exactly to the point that the Ukrainians will want back control of their essential territory, and they'll want to be able to do that in a way that allows them then to rebuild. And we've got this phase, which is helping them get to that point, and then the next phase, which is then helping them on their journey, not just of recovery, but of progress. Yeah, because we all know when the passions of uh, elation over either a military victory or a successful peace process pass, then you're left with the details and the consequences of the choices which had to be made to put an end to the conflict, which may be huge barriers to development. We see that in Bosnia even today. You know, that if anybody had told me 20 years ago when we stuck with Kosovo and saved them from, I think, a terrible fate, that they would actually be somewhat better off in term at least politically than Bosnia, I never would have believed it. Yeah. You know, one of the things we should just spend a moment on is the relevance of that Kosovo experience to today. Because you know it it taught me two things that are, are, are very important. The first is it taught me the, the advantage of that relationship between the UK and the US. Because I, I will say to people, your leadership at the time in Kosovo was what made the difference ultimately. So, you know, we, we could, it, from the UK side, we could and we did. We tried to rally European opinion. We tried to make sure that we keep up the pressure because there was terrible slaughter of innocent people happening. But it was when you were prepared to just hint at the possibility of direct American military intervention. Um, and that you know, remember all the stuff about boots on the ground. Just that hint brought Milosevic's campaign of, of you know, um, frankly, obliteration of the Kosovo people to an end. And you had to do that in circumstances where I think I'm right in saying at the time there was no great movement in America. It was actually unlike Ukraine in the sense there was no great movement in America to do this, but you did it. And the thing it taught me was without it, we couldn't have solved that problem. So I think the Europe that that. Ukraine is brought back again, and I agree. I think President Biden's done a great job of bringing the West together, giving it a renewed sense of mission and purpose. Um, but the other thing I learned is that you you have to be, 
you know, for all the difficulties, and there are difficulties, and I'm, you know, no, no a lot of that post 9-11, but this relationship in the end is about making sure you're prepared to stand up strongly for not just the interests you have, but the values you have, because there are large parts of the world that are looking to us for that leadership. Let me take a little pivot on that. I want to come back to that, but we are next year going to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Accord. I, I know it, we could spend five hours on this, but what's your take on the state of the Irish peace political process now and the difficulties that still remain because of unresolved questions caused by Brexit? My view is that the Good Friday Agreement in the end will hold because it's put down deep roots. And I don't think there is any desire on the part of the vast majority of people on the island of Ireland or in Northern Ireland to go back to violence. However, Brexit, because it meant Britain or the UK leaving the European Union, and for the first time, therefore, being in a different relationship to Europe than the Irish Republic in the south of Ireland, what that meant was for the first time, the border between North and South in Ireland became the external border of the European Union. And, you know, leave aside whether you like Brexit or don't like Brexit, I'm pretty well known for not liking it. Um, the fact That's a fact that for the first time, because the Republic of Ireland and the North of Ireland, North of Ireland being part of the UK, had always been in the same relationship. You know, when the European Union was founded, we both stayed out. In 1973, we both joined together. So that border never really mattered until now. And the result of that is because Britain has, and you know, the UK has got out of the single market of the European Union, is that that external border between North and South, unless you make special arrangements, means that you're it's no longer open because it's a it's a you're putting the trading arrangements between the two bits of the the, the north and the south you're putting those trading arrangements um, into a situation where it's they're in, they're operating in different systems so you have to have a whole lot of checks and balances that are inconsistent with an open border okay it gets all very <laughs> complicated at that point but to try and simplify what it means today is we've got a situation where the UK agreed something with the European Union back in 2019 to resolve this problem. It didn't really resolve it. We've now got a big standoff and it's putting the, the whole of that shared community government in the north of Ireland at risk because the unionists don't want any form of checks. And yet, since we're now operating in different spheres of the market that's bound to be checked. So it's a very, very difficult situation. I think it will still hold, but I think that if, if we don't find a practical way through, it is going to undermine the relationships between the communities in Northern Ireland. And that over time could put the Good Friday Agreement in peril. At the moment, I think there's still a huge desire to keep the thing strong and intact. But if this goes on, and say ends up in the worst case scenario in some trade war between 
um, Europe and the UK, it would it would be, yeah, it would be a very very serious thing indeed. What do you make of the strong performance by Sinn Fein in the most recent election? Well, it is really interesting. And of course, you were absolutely instrumental in helping us guide the Good Friday Agreement um, through. And you know, I remember when I first came into power, uh, and I decided I would go for this peace process in Northern Ireland. A lot of people said to me, "I wouldn't touch that." You've got absolutely no chance. People thought it was much more likely you get peace in the Middle East than you would get peace in Northern Ireland. <laughs> but when we got into the negotiation, that you you really helped us pull people together and were, were an amazing um, uh, stalwarts. But when that happened, Sinn Féin, and it's a really interesting thing, so they came from being outcasts, you know, the British state used to stop them even being broadcast, right? And then they came into a peace process, at first very reluctantly. Then over the years, as they gave up violence and engaged in politics, they're now in a position where they're the largest party in Northern Ireland. And actually, they're doing well down in the south of Ireland. Now, you know, there's bits of Sinn Féin politics that frankly aren't my politics at all, of course. But the interesting thing is, as well, is that a group that was on the fringe engaged in violence, once they opted for peace, managed to obtain significant political advance. And that, funnily enough, I think isn't, isn't a lesson for the peace process in the Middle East today. Um, so I, I think Sinn Féin, no, it's been an extraordinary change in their position, um, but it's partly, I'm afraid, because as a result of the disagreements over this Northern Ireland protocol, they, they've got a much stronger position. And for the first time, really in my political lifetime, a united Ireland is on the agenda in a way it's not been before. We'll be right back. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment legal or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Let me ask you about uh, the whole globalization project. You know, uh, you and I supported more trade ties, but we also supported uh, active government to try to make the most of them and take care of the adjustments that had to be made if people were displaced. Now, there's a movement uh, that is sort of part protectionist economics, but a lot of it is ethnic and cultural protectionism that I think threatens the whole enterprise to which we gave so much of our lives and politics. And one thing that strikes me as really ironic today as I look around the world is that people who actually govern from what I would call a vital center, that is, they're not centrist in the sense of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, don't do much. There are people that actually find solutions that can command the support of a majority of the people and move. The voters seem to like it once they get in, but increasingly in countries with a lot of political polarization, they want they can't bring themselves to vote for what they say they want. And I think that's that's a a serious problem, particularly in the information ecostructure we live in today. So what's what's your take on that? Will a parliamentary system like the UK's have an easier time adjusting to that and overcoming it than a system like the one we have? Um, So I don't think it makes a difference if you have a parliamentary system or not. Everywhere in the West right now, you've got this polarized politics. And it's partly because the political activists in in the mainstream parties have become quite radicalized, either on the nationalist right or or on the the the, the left around issues like kind of identity politics and so on. Um, I still think, and I, I it'd be interesting actually to know what you think about this. But I still think this is basically a supply side problem. In other words, when when you present people with what you call a vital center, and I sometimes call a a radical center or a a more muscular center. In other words, we're not splitting the difference between left and right, but you're trying to understand the way the world's changing and apply eternal values to a changing situation. I think that's the best position for progressive politics. And I think it usually wins when it offers that. And, you know, the truth is, 
for the people doing the nationalists and right-wing politics, it, it is populist and it therefore is to a degree popular, but it's much more about riding the anger than providing the answer. And in the end, I, I think it, you know, there is a, a desire uh, amongst the population at large in all of our countries to have a reasonable politics, but it's often not on offer. You know, so if you look around Europe, you know, Macron gets re-elected. Um, Schultz was elected in Germany, really as the successor to Merkel. In Italy, Draghi is the, having been the head of the European Central Bank, is now the prime minister. You know, President Biden was in many ways elected because there were independents who said, look, it's not for me just about policy. I don't like the way the previous president has been handling the issues and we need to bring people together. So I think there's a, the, the, the desire is there. I think the challenge for us is to realize the world is changing and the world's changing very, very fast. So you have a technology revolution that's changing everything and in respect of globalization, I still think the process of globalization in the sense of the world moving closer together and being interdependent, I think that's still completely valid. But I do think, for example, you will find situations where people think they're vulnerable unless they onshore or reshore, where, for example, people think it's sensible as technology develops to do more in your own country. But I don't think that alters the basic point, which is the world is going to be interdependent, needs to work together on its problems. And if that reversal of globalization or movement against globalization ends up in things like protectionism. It's just going to damage people and lose jobs. But am I, Bill, from your, I mean, am I right in thinking it's a, it's a supply problem, not a demand problem? Or do you think actually what people want is that more populist politics until they get it? I think that they have been preconditioned to want it by various changes in the information ecostructure and and the fact that at least in the United States the the right has been more adept at organizing uh, in local elections and taking over state legislatures and things like that but it's interesting to me when I was a governor for example back in the late 70s and throughout the 80s there was a general consensus that state government was primarily about schools and jobs. We provided a lot of social services, a lot, of, particularly in mental health, and there were other things that were really uh, legitimate issues and could become big issues if there was a problem in delivery. But by and large, there were these dueling notions of the government's role in providing an educated electorate and then developing an economy that maximized their potential. Now, if you try to have that conversation in the hard right states, they'll simply say, well, we just don't believe that, whatever that is. Two and two is four is an opinion. That's the education establishment. You call everything you don't agree with an establishment. And it's very deeply troubling to me because there is, uh, it's difficult to get people just to think. 
and to feel free to do that. It's, it's really, I, I, I realize it's probably much more pronounced in the United States than anywhere in Europe. There was a recent analysis that said it was. But uh, I'm concerned about it because I think I'm with you. Whether you like it or not, the world is interdependent. We can't escape each other. So this whole deal is an argument about how to define our interdependence and how to make it as positive as possible and reduce the negative consequences as much as possible. For people who deny our interdependence, they guarantee that the negative side will defeat the positive side. So over the long run, I think it's really bad, but it sure seems to be working well in elections. Yeah, I guess, so you've got social media, that is a new revolutionary phenomenon, changes the way politics works. Because look, you and I both know that one of the first lessons you learn in politics is that those that shout loudest don't deserve to be heard most, right? But social media is the very opposite of that, right? It's the, it's the, you know, it's the platform, frankly, of, of very loudmouth people. So I think that is a, a huge problem. I think my, my view is that populists exploit grievances, but they don't necessarily invent them. In other words, there is a kernel of genuine anxiety. You know, so whenever I'm debating issues of immigration, this side of the water, I say, no, there is a real issue but we can deal with it through proper rules that don't descend into prejudices, right? And I think, you know, there is a way of, of creating, this is why you need a center that, that's, that, that is radical and vital, because you've got to show it can deliver solutions to those grievances. And if it, you know, where, where I always find our side of politics very weak, is when we give people a choice that's essentially moderate and dull or exciting and extreme. Because, you know, that's a pretty grisly choice to make, especially <laughs> if you're a young person, you want to be inspired. You want to be inspired by something that's exciting, but also sensible. And I think that's our biggest challenge. And you've got to do that in a world of social media where that, that type of rational discussion is often difficult. My point is though, when you really drill down, okay, you do have these very loud voices, but in the end, you know, I still have faith that if you offer something that is a movement for change from the center and not a management of the status quo, you could win through. More after this. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio discover more shows and movies for free 
This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Can you give us uh, some examples of governments that you've worked with that our listeners may not be all that familiar with that you think are successfully taking on the challenges facing their countries? Yeah, so we, we, we work with governments. That, my institute's a not-for-profit, and basically we put teams of people in to help governments make change. And that can be you know everything from the way governments organize the center to how you deliver a proper maternal and, and, and child mortality program, for example, in COVID, we help countries um, register vaccinations, use the data in order to gain a better understanding of the healthcare system. We've helped do clean energy projects where there's a real need for energy and power, but you want the developing world to develop in a way that's that's clean. You know, so it's everything. And by the way, one of the things comes very specific from something you and I um, once had a conversation about. When I was leader of the opposition, I went to visit you in the in, in the White House. Um, and I remember you, I came to see you in the White House and I was leader of the opposition. We were doing well, but obviously I wasn't prime minister. You were um, uh, in, your, in your second term as president. And you said to me when I went into the White House that day, you said, remind me before you leave, I've got to tell you something really important. And I was convinced you were going to tell me some great state secret. You know, you were going, you were going to say, look, there really is, there's a Western plan and it's in the vault of the White House and I'm now going to share it with you. <laughs> so I was quite, I was quite enthralled by this. Anyway, you didn't say anything to me. And as I was leaving, I said to you, so what was it you would have to tell me? And you said, oh yeah, you said, you've got to organize your office around you very, very carefully. You've got to make sure that you retain time for thinking, 
that you've actually got a political strategy and not just a series of disconnected tactics. And I confess, at the time, I was a little underwhelmed because I thought that <laughs> this was short of, you know, the great world plan that you were about to give me. <laughs> but when I'm working with governments today around the world, I often tell them that story. And I say, as a result of that, when I came into power and was governing, I suddenly realized it's okay. You win power on being a great persuader. You get into power. You've got to be the great executive. You've got to make things happen. And how you organize your infrastructure around you, you know, if you've got the right people advising, if you've got your just managing your diary in the most effective way so that you're meeting the right people, thinking the right things, spending time on your priorities. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that fascinates me is that all of these things which are about the practical ability to govern well, all of it should be driven by values, but very little when you're actually in government should be the product of ideological preconception. It's often about practical solutions, and it's as much about an understanding the world in order to change it as it is about conventional policy. Thanks for saying that. I, I agree with that. And I, I think that one of the things that people who have your philosophy and mine have to keep in mind is that the people who want to defeat us have to make elections about something else, not about those people and about their empowerment, but about whether you're too far left or not left enough or, you know, your second cousin stole a used car, whatever it is, anything that, you know, to make it about you, to make it about a reputation destruction operation. And so keeping, having the discipline and picking the people necessary to have an outer focus, an utter focus, a people-focused administration, I think is very important. It doesn't mean you shouldn't answer legitimate criticisms about you or questions people may have, but the general thing I find is... If you spend too much time a day playing defense, you know, especially against very sort of personal sneering attacks, you're losing even if you're winning. I mean, I used to tell people when they talked to me, they said, why won't you talk about all this whitewater business? I said, well, we do answer it every day. The lawyers answer it. And I said, you know, if, if they're making ground on something, we monitor it and then we go after that. But if I, in this climate, get asked a question about whitewater and I give an answer on a scale of 1 to 10 to 10, that's not nearly as good as giving a 6 answer to are we going to grow manufacturing jobs, what are we doing with the human genome, What do you name it, anything. Because sooner or later people will say if all you do is answer questions about from your critics, shouldn't you resign office and do? you're doing a great job of it, but you don't have any time for me. Because one of the, the most stunning thing that happened to me in my first six months as president was we did something that had never been done before, and I don't know if it's been done since. We had a town hall meeting, in effect, with, uh, let's say, a hundred and something people in the Rose Garden of the White House, picked from the line that forms to tour the White House every day. 
totally, we had no idea what the profile was. We just, you come in, ask your questions. So this guy said, uh, you know, I voted for you because you promised to focus on the economy like a laser. And all you've done since you've been in office is try to get gays in the military. He said, I'm not, I don't know that I'm how I feel about that, but I'm pretty sure it's not the most important thing we're facing. And I said to him, I said, you know, it's interesting. I just passed the six-month uh, mark, so I had an analysis done of my time. And I spent 60% of my time on the economy and 40% on foreign policy. And in the national security, foreign policy and national security, and I said in the national security category, I had a meeting at their request with the Joint Chiefs of Staff about gays in the military. I didn't have the meeting until 9.30 at night, so we wouldn't spend all day talking about it, and I wouldn't say much about it because I couldn't tell which way this was going. And I said, otherwise, I've spent a grand total of 30 minutes on this in six months. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, but I just don't believe you. And this is even more hypercharged now than it was then, that whoever is going to run today, if you seek to do what you talked about, you know, to govern in a space of creativity and even sometimes radical change, but one that can bring people together around values, it takes an extraordinary amount of discipline and an interesting team, a team of people whose warning lights go off if they think you're about to be caught in, in essentially being your own defense attorney in a defamation trial, because no matter how good you are, it doesn't work. No, that's 100%. I mean, I think the thing is, I always think that the right-wing politics are just infinitely more ruthless than, than, than our side. And they have absolutely no compunction about coming after you on anything they possibly can, Anything that, that is personal, because they also think it's a destabilizing thing, they try and destabilize the team around you. And the other thing is they do defend their own. Whereas the progressive or liberal side, you know, tend to sort of join in. The, you know, once they get into government, they always feel kind of guilty that they're there, because surely they must have done something unprincipled to arrive at this position in government. Um, because, you know, they have a naturally, you know, anti-establishment view. And the, the point is, it therefore means that what you've got to be, you've got to have that iron discipline. And I often say to people, you know, in the Labour Party, we've suffered now another four election defeats. Uh, there were four election defeats before my time. There have been four election defeats since that time. And sometimes with, with people in the Labour Party, they say to me, you know, tell us how to win. And I start by saying, well, tell me, is your priority winning? And they kind of go, you know, of course it's winning. And I say, no, it's not of course, because a lot of the progressive side of politics, its objective, yes, it's to win, but its primary purpose is to make itself feel good about itself, right? Is to convince itself that it's principle, right? But that is in the end something that leads you to self-indulgence. In the end, if you really believe in what you believe in, you don't have to convince yourself because you know you believe in it. The important thing is to get into power to do it and to be able to implement. 
And I think what it means is you do have to play defense, not in the sense you're talking about the personal attacks, but for example, if your opponents are gonna come after you, let's say all of this stuff on culture and the culture wars at the moment, if you wanna, if you wanna win, you've got to be in the center of gravity of opinion on these things. You cannot be in a situation where some loose remark from someone's going to be taken as indicative of the whole political position you've got, and then you just hammer day in, day out. That, that's, just, that's just not competent politics. So you've got to be able to, to build your defensive capabilities against the onslaught that comes from the right. But then, of course, you, you, you use that not in order to play defense. You use that to be able to project a vision of the future that is one that's optimistic and that allows people to think, well, yeah, these guys are going to make my life better. But, you know, we, we, we constantly, our side of politics has this constant desire to get, to, to do this introspection on itself, to examine whether, you know, it's betraying its own cause and it really, I mean, I, I don't know, it, maybe it's a little different with the Democrats, but the British Labour Party, you could, in 120 years of history, this has been our, you know, this has been our, our, our folly, our perennial folly. And, you know, we end up losing to conservatives and persuading ourselves that we lost because we weren't left wing enough, which, as I always say to people, is a, you know, it's an odd assessment of the British people. I had to vote conservative because you weren't left wing enough. Yeah. You know, it's like people said to me, you know, people really wanted Jeremy Corbyn and, you know, who's leader of the Labour Party when we suffered the last election defeat, which was terrible. And I said, what, what makes you think if they've been voting Conservative for three elections? <laughs> what they want is a really left-wing Labour Party when they've re been rejecting a moderately left-wing Labour Party. So, but anyway, the point is, to, to, to your point, you've got to, if you're going to defeat this populism, because it's a very virulent thing on the right now. You have to be really tough-minded about it, because the truth is, if you end up allowing the right to retake power, it, there are elements of the right today which aren't like the right wing that we were growing up with. The right wing that I grew up with did a lot of things I didn't like, I opposed them a lot, but they were basically quite practical people. What happened somewhere in the last 20 odd years is the right wing got ideology. They got the ideology bug and that ideology is quite frightening at points. I completely agree with that. And I don't think you can, you know, win it back by talking down to people or, you know, acting like they don't know what they're doing. The Republicans in America found out uh, that, well, Maybe they'll go along with these radicals in the Republican Party and taking the election away or making it harder for some constituents to vote or whatever. But we have now made it easier by letting the loose lips sink ship syndrome for them to win a legitimate election by just scaring the living daylights out of anybody that's got something to lose. That's what no one seems to understand. I mean, the... the the average person has a limited bandwidth for politics, but they know if they're generally doing better or not. They know if they've got a chance to raise their kids well or not. And so, and they'll listen if you want to do something uh, that they think will help them 
on their life's journey. But but you cannot, I completely agree with you that you, I don't think you can let charges that affect the way they think you would affect their lives, you can't let those things go. You have to answer those. But it always has to be thrown back to the people. I tell people, you know, you sometimes the Democrats look bad because they were afraid they were, like you said, had a guilt complex about whether they were perfectly progressive. But it was also, they rely too much on polls in this country in the sense that it's like they're afraid to get beat. And and I think one of the ways you win elections is by talking straight with people and giving them permission to vote against you. I think that's an enormous power. In effect, you don't say, I give you permission to vote against me, but you, you talk about it in a way that, well, if, this, if you really disagree with this, then you will go out and take another choice. But here's why I think it's better for you. And we have to learn to talk to people uh, quite apart from the specifics in a way that they can relate to. You know, I worry sometimes we sound like, well, of course everybody knows this out of the other thing. Well, of course they don't. Right. No, sure. So what, you, what makes you optimistic? Why do you think that what we believe is important will catch on enough to basically avoid the worst consequences of climate change, deal with this mass and migration problem, uh, answer the legitimate questions about equality of opportunity, and maybe stop this assault on the very idea of education as somehow an establishment plot. What makes you optimistic about it? What makes me optimistic is that even though I think as 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 the world has developed, we have the means of destroying ourselves, whether through nuclear proliferation or through climate change. We also have the means of getting a better future. And virtually wherever I go, we, we, we work in about 30, 35 different countries. Wherever you go, people of very different contexts lead different lives and so on. But they basically, all of them want the same thing, which is, which is believe it or not, they aspire to you know, getting on in life, raising a family, living in peace and security. You know, they want to, to live in a community of people and not just as an individual. You know, all of the things I find most people in the end are open-minded, not closed-minded. You just need to create the, the world in which they feel confident in doing that. And that's our task. So the reason for my optimism is that Virtually everywhere I go in the world today, I'm seeing those types of people. Now, in the end, that is also the future success for their country. So if you, if you, if you want to succeed as a country, it's all about being connected. It's all about your people being educated. It's all about open-mindedness. It's about crossing the boundaries of faith and race and culture and nation. And those are the people that are going to succeed. So I, I think this is why I think, you know, if we focus on what are the things necessary to create that sense of hope and optimism because the world is moving towards a more open-minded view, despite all the forces pushing against that, ultimately there's a very strong human force pushing in favor of it, then I think you know we, we will succeed. Um, and I don't, there's no reason for us. I mean, you, 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 we started with Ukraine and we can, in a, in a sense, bring it full circle. 
And it's an amazing thing. Those people were invaded. They're fighting for their country, but they're not just fighting for their, their, their homeland. They're fighting for a, an idea of what their future can be as, a, as an independent country coming within the European family, offering their young people hope for the future. And I think that human spirit, which I believe is basically benign, even though people, of course, can behave very badly, that human spirit is what will see us through ultimately. But it's, you know, it needs agency. It needs us to get behind it and do it. I always feel better when I talk to you. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> when I talk to you. <laughs> well, I just hope uh, now that we're at the grandparent stage of life that we are leaving things in a manageable way and that our grandchildren at least will confront new problems and different problems and have new horizons. And uh, I think there's a good chance we will if we avoid this sort of negative populism where everybody thinks their victimhood is greater than everybody else's. There are real victims in life, and we should focus on them. But for the rest of us, we should focus on empowerment, not victimhood. Well, I'm into that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony, and thanks for a quarter century of friendship. Okay, thanks, Bill. Thank you very much indeed. Absolute pleasure. Why Am I Telling You This is a production of iHeartRadio, the Clinton Foundation, and At Will Media. Our executive producers are Craig Manassian and Will Malnati. Our production team includes Jameson Katsufas, Tom Galton, Sarah Horowitz, and Jake Young, with production support from Liz Raftery and Josh Farnham. Original music by Watt White. Special thanks to John Sykes, John Davidson, Angel Urena, Corey Gansley, Kevin Thurm, Oscar Flores, and all our dedicated staff and partners at the Clinton Foundation. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Hemphill, director of the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, a one-of-a-kind partnership between the Presidential Centers of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. President Clinton often says that the key to great leadership is in finding our common humanity, something that's needed now more than ever. That's why each year we bring together a dramatically diverse group of leaders, from doctors to teachers, elected officials to scientists, active military and veterans, all of whom have a passion for making the world a better place. We create a culture of collaboration that transcends partisan divides and ideological differences in service of a greater good. Today, presidential leadership scholars across the country are working together and actively applying the lessons learned in our program to help tackle today's most pressing challenges. You can learn more about this work and see how you can get involved by visiting www.clintonfoundation.org slash podcast. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and expect. 
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. 